You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, as part of a special panel in honour of Professor Stephen Ellis, a paper by Dr. Gerald Power from the Metropolitan University, Prague. His paper was entitled, An English Gentleman and His Community, Sir William Brabazon and the Formation of the New English. Many people will be aware that the title of this presentation is partly pilfered from my former doctoral mentor, Stephen Ellis, so I need to explain this. Uh, I gained my first insight into Stephen's uh, unique contribution to Irish and English historiography uh, as an undergraduate student when I took a compulsory course in tu- uh, on Tudor Ireland. Um, while I was leafing through History Ireland magazine from 1999, I came across the now famous exchange with Kenneth Nichols over the identity of Ireland's medieval English community. It was the first academic debate I became aware of, and I was immediately impressed with how Ellis overturned almost everything conventionally taught about the Anglo-Irish, at least in Dublin. Um, I decided straight away that Steve Ellis was right about the English in medieval Ireland. 19 years old and, and sure about these things. Um, I then decided to do a PhD in Tudor history at Galway and to learn at Steve Ellis's feet, as it were. Um, as the initial intoxication of doctoral studies gave way to the inevitable hangover, sometimes a literal one, for Kieran, um, discovering Steve Ellis's chapter entitled An English Gentleman and, and His Community, Sir William Darcy of Platon, um, in the festschrift for Karl Bottigheimer was an important step for me in many ways. Stephen's study of the Meath landowner and early Tudor official is a tour de force of archival research, drawing upon underused and difficult sources such as uh, late medieval court rolls and extracts, in addition to more familiar state papers. For a student of the pale nobility, as by then I was, um, this was the most useful guide to such sources and their interpretation. Um, available, and it probably still is. Uh, In terms of content and argument, an English gentleman and his community was an extended version of Stephen's much briefer History Ireland article, showing Darcy as an Englishman, keen to parade his status as a a subject of his king. This was and is something that Ellis can do like no other, describing English constitutional theory and reality in a borderland context. But but I was also drawn to the social titbits, which unusually for an Ellis piece were showcased. Uh, Glimpses were given of young William Darcy learning to dance, um, attending weddings, um, then retiring in old age. After reading the article for the first time, I quickly arranged a trip to the National Archives in Dublin to see these references for myself. Um, A desire still unquenched and unfulfilled to write social history was aroused. Not that I told Stephen this at the time. Um, Overall, an English gentleman and his community exemplifies Stephen's scholarship. Bold ideas backed up with a profound, perhaps unrivaled, understanding of the primary sources. 
So when I was approached recently to prepare something for a panel in Stephen's honour, I quickly thought how apt it would be to use the methodology and, implication, and implications of an English gentleman in, and his community as a starting point. Um, not only a formative influence on my own development, Stephen's chapter has a direct bearing upon my current research, which focuses on the so-called New English community of Tudor Ireland from the 1530s to the 1560s. Because of its robust argument in favour of a strong sense of English identity among men like Sir William Darcy, it invites many questions about the senses of community and identity of the New English. Ellis tells us that Darcy's ultimate ambition was to maintain a little England across the Irish Sea, which sounds very much like the motivations of the New English, as conventionally described by the historiography. Moreover, if Darcy's Englishness was as strong as Ellis argues it was, how do we account for the later breach between Old and New English that the historiography of Tudor Ireland gives such prominence to? Uh, I decided to attempt a case study of one of the first generation of these so-called New Englishmen in Ireland, Sir William Brabazon, using the same three-pronged approach that Ellis used for Darcy, the county context, the region and the nation. What follows is an attempt to show some ways in which the life and career of an early Tudor palesman like Darcy compares and contrasts with a mid-Tudor English-born official. So my, big, my basic question is, are they really all that different? So to start with the county, um, Stephen Ellis's portrait of William Darcy put him at the centre of his county community in Meath. He served as sheriff and was deeply involved in defence and local politics before retiring to a monastery in Drogheda. Now, William Brabazon was a Leicestershire man. He was born around 1500 in Eastwell, near Melton Mowbray, um, according to genealogies, the second son of one John Brabazon. The Brabazons were a minor gentry family who had been seated at this village of Eastwell since the 1200s. The family's position declined when, in around 1486, the Brabazon heir died without issue, leaving, to, leaving the estates to two sisters. Thus the land passed to the Hastings and Sherrard families, families in the top rank of Leicestershire, um, although William's family and relations stayed on at Eastwell, uh, presumably as, ten as tenants. So William was the second son of a family without great prospects. William's early life is obscure, but to judge from his later career, he must have picked up a certain amount of legal training, and he entered into the service of the rising Thomas Cromwell. Um, this is for, by 1526. Service to Cromwell in the 1520s, when Cromwell himself was in the service of Wolsey, um, included responsibilities in his home shire, um, in which Brabazon rubbed shoulders with the leading men. He informed Cromwell in 1529 that Cromwell's cousin was well and was with the Marquis of Dorset, father to Leonard Grey, the Greys, um, a big landowning family in Leicestershire at this time. Um, in 1533, William was in fiefed along with William Skeffington and others, Skeffington also a local Leicestershire family, um, of Leicestershire lands belonging to a royal petitioner, uh, Agnes Clark. And while the life of a Cromwell agent was necessarily peripatetic with periods in London, William Brabazon remained a Leicestershire man. Uh, the bulk of his work before 1534, for which records survive, was in regard to the foundation of Wolsey's colleges in Oxford and Ipswich, which necessitated the um, suppression of several small monasteries across England. Reporting on the sale of a parsonage in North Leicestershire, Brabazon commented wistfully that he would have liked it for himself 
as it was only two miles from his birthplace, but that it must go to the highest bidder. That was in 1528. What is more significant is that Brabazon retained his interest in the land of his ancestors after he became a man of substance in Ireland. At an unknown point, he began negotiations with Hugh Hastings to purchase that man's share of the Eastwell lands. In April 1537, he wrote to Cromwell, asking him for his help in his dealings with Hastings. It seems to have worked, because later that year, an agreement was reached, allowing William Brabazon to purchase Eastwell and associated property from Hastings, and thus restore much of the family uh, Brabazon lands. And Brabazon died seized of this property. By this point, however, the 1530s, Brabazon was also becoming a Dubliner, from his arrival in autumn 1534 until his death in 1552, Brabazon's primary base was in Dublin City, save for brief official sojourns in London and his administrative and military duties in the Pale and beyond. The under-treasurer, as he was, uh, quickly struck up positive relations with members of the city's patriciate. Uh, Thomas Stevens, then mayor, wrote to the Duke of Norfolk in 1536 that there never came a more honest gentleman into this land of his degree, nor willinger for the king's honour and profit. I ensure your grace he is as good unto me as I were his brother. It is possible that Stevens had become acquainted with Brabazon before 1534, when the Dubliner was groom of the chamber to Henry VIII. While it is almost certain that Stevens had a personal interest in praising Brabazon, uh, he received a grant of the customs of Dublin and Drogheda in the same year, it is reasonable to suggest that the under-treasurer's famously robust campaigning against the Fitzgeralds endeared him to the embattled Dublin residents. In any case, the under-treasurer steadily accrued a portfolio um, of property in the city and county that placed him on a par with the leading gentry. Um, and just to go through this a bit uh, more rapidly, the point I'd like to make about Brabazon, the Dublin property owner, is that uh, all his dealings are with the members of the Dublin, established Dublin families. His tenants are Stillens, Scurlocks and Hands. Um, uh, so he seems to be uh, becoming integrated, assimilated into the local um, landowning um, elite. Um, the under-treasurer also maintained a presence um, in Leicestershire, as we said, throughout his life. And, and this dualism was reflected in the circumstances of his death and burial. Dying while on campaign in East Ulster in 1552, Brabazon's body was shipped back to Dublin, where it was buried in the manorial church at St Thomas Court, his major property. Um, his heart, however, was removed and interred at the family church at Eastwell in Leicestershire. But, but even at this point, Brabazon seems to, be, seems to have been pulled in two directions. Um, that he was assimilated <laughs> into the ranks of the Dublin elite uh, is suggested by the recording of his obit um, uh, in Christ Church in their Book of Obits, alongside the Dublin patrician families with which he regularly rubbed shoulders, Thomas Stevens, the former mayor, being one of them. Uh, if you look at the region, we can see that um, for William Darcy, the English Pale was his region. Being a palesman was a central foundation of his, of his essential Englishness and the Pale's existence was, was one of the most important political factors in his career. Now, William Brabazon was seldom in one place for long and while we can identify 
his home region perhaps as the English Midlands and his adopted region as the English Pale in Ireland, his career seems to have transcended such entities. Um, his service to Cromwell and later Henry VIII himself took him across the length and breadth of the Tudor territories. An identification, an indication, sorry, of his mobility can be glimpsed by noting the locations from, uh, from where Brabazon wrote to Cromwell in the 1520s and 1530s. There are nine letters before he left for Ireland, and we can see a slight bias in favour of the Midlands, um, but also he wrote to Cromwell from Suffolk, from Kent, um, uh, in Carmarthen, and, Car- in, and uh, from Carlisle, he wrote uh, surveying the lands of goods, uh, surveying lands and goods of indicted traitors. He writes from Nicholas Carew's place in Surrey and tidying up after the king's progress there. Uh, he was again dispatched to Wales to take possession on behalf of Anne Boleyn of her new estates as Marchioness of Pembrokeshire. Brabazon was similarly peripatetic in Ireland as official business and most likely his personal martial inclinations took him far from his Dublin city base. To be sure, like Sir William Darcy, Brabazon was concerned with the defence of the Pale, but possibly because he was an outsider and, to boot, a member of the great Cromwell's circle, he had a grander pan-provincial vision of Ireland and his own status within it. Within a year of his arrival in Ireland, William assured Cromwell that when the Fitzgeralds of Kildare were expunged, all Ireland would be conformable if the king grasped the opportunity quickly. He hustled for grants of wastelands beyond the Pale Marches and criticised Palesmen for preferring to enjoy quiet and profitable lands in sheltered areas and suffering the marches to be raided by the Irish instead of taking responsibility for developing and defending vulnerable properties. His portfolio included lands and tithes in all of the Pale Shires, as well as Carlow, Kilkenny and the Diocese of um, Cashel and Emley, and briefly at least, the Annerley Lordship, as well as Lacale, Ardglass and Strangford. Brabazon's reputation as a hawk may well have stemmed from his determination to amass a patrimony in Ireland far beyond the restricted compass of the English Pale. In his ambition and his scope, he was perhaps a real Cromwellian. Um, His choice of spouse was a Kent heiress, Elizabeth Clifford. His choice of protégé was Andrew Wise, a son of Waterford, a city always held high in William's esteem. So Brabazon was anything but a provincial. Finally, at the national level, we see that for Stephen Ellis, Darcy's career as an early Tudor official um, at the national level was a blend of consistent ideological commitment to English identity and good rule with a pragmatism that was essential to survival and success in the sometimes dangerous, very dangerous world of Irish politics. These sentiments and existential necessities were foundations for Darcy's place within the community of local noblemen and gentlemen and fellow crown servants. As outlined in the introduction, Sir William Brabazon's career as Tudor servant can be approached in many different ways. But as my purpose is to examine Brabazon from the perspective of community, uh, I would like in the final section to focus on Brabazon's position within what we might call entourages, circles or networks. According to Michael Questier's analysis of the Catholic community in early modern England, when significant numbers of these entourages or circles shared ideological concerns, we can then speak of a community, uh, with the Catholics of England being a prime example. 
could be interesting tr- to transpose this idea to the case of Brabazon. The crucial question will be whether or not the evidence points to Brabazon as a prototypical new Englishman, or uh, maybe more as an old-fashioned Englishman in the Darcy mould. So William Brabazon was part of two major circles for which, uh, which for a time overlapped. First, he was a member of the Cromwell Circle. This was acknowledged by the great man himself, who made a bequest for William in his will. Um, Cromwell was informed on several occasions about the state of Brabazon's health, as well as that of his horse, and he laid out over four pounds in doctor's fees for William when he was sick for five weeks in 1528. To judge from his consistent service to Cromwell in a variety of commissions, Brabazon was a dependable agent. Other witnesses remarked on his diligence that Cromwell valued William as an informant can be inferred from the occasions where Brabazon tendered his opinion of his fellow agents and various characters with whom he came into contact, a practice he would take to extreme levels uh, while under treasurer in Ireland. Brabazon remained Cromwell's man following, following his transfer to Dublin, as contemporaries were well aware, but the under-treasurer quickly began to build his own entourage. Now here, the contrast with Darcy seems apparent. Um, as an important Meath landowner and occasional holder of high office, Sir William Darcy undoubtedly had a measure of influence, but his place in the political elite in the early 1500s seems to owe more to his expertise than to his power. Um, Brabazon had power and he used it. Much of this stemmed from his office and the unique circumstances for patronage that attended the fall of the Kildare Fitzgeralds and the dissolution of the Irish monasteries. In what looks like a shrewd observation, uh, Leonard Gray informed Cromwell that, for fear of the lash thereto, or the dread of the hurt that might grow to them by by his displeasure, or else the desire of his favours, whereby they trust consequently to have yours, every man is glad to please him, and for their own preferment both to adhere to him and do what they may in his praise and commendation. <coughs> the evidence for who was in Brabazon's entourage can be extrapolated from the many letters of recommendation written by the under-treasurer to Cromwell on behalf of his petitioners, and from remarks in other state papers by Brabazon himself or his supporters or opponents. The picture that emerges is that Brabazon's circle was in no way a new English clique. Um, the pic- um, yes, Brabazon writes in favour of newly arrived soldiers. Um, he requested that his kinsman John Brabazon and several clerical support staff be dispatched from England to assist him. He authored criticisms of the local nobility, both English and Irish, advocated colonisation, specifying a leading role for men like himself, new arrivals from England, um, but there's nothing really here is, seems to be proof, for me at least, of a new English mentality. Uh, as under-treasurer, Brabazon would have been constantly petitioned by underpaid and discontented soldiers. Um, the call for familiar relatives and colleagues from England to join him need not be taken as a rejection of the local officials in Ireland, but more as an indication of the massive challenges he was confronted with as revenue collector in Ireland and a desire to have kinsmen um, around him. A desire for a fresh influx of English people and intolerance with Ireland's provincial nobles were sentiments shared by many of the English community in Ireland. And members of the local Englishry were important members of Brabazon's entourage. He seems to have especially favoured the mercantile or patrician class, uh, Waterford and Dublin townsmen with ambitions to rise in government service gravitated towards Brabazon and Limerick too. 
Um, men like Richard Kulak, William and Andrew Wise, Francis Herbert, um, the Wises had a very intimate connection uh, with Brabazon. Uh, William's son, Andrew, would marry his Brabazon's daughter, um, Anne. He seems to have got on reasonably well with local officials, such as Gerald Elmer and Thomas Luttrell, and was an important early patron of Thomas Cusack. His fees were drawn from this circle of officials, and most were of Irish birth, John and James Bath, Richard Finglas, Chief Justice Luttrell, and the Dean of Christchurch, Thomas Lockwood, and Derbyshire-born Henry Draycott. Brabazon even developed a close relationship with one of the Pale's great feudal landlords, the fourth Baron of Delvin. We'll hear more about Delvin in a couple of minutes. Uh, and, of course, his greatest opponents were all of English birth. Um, Skeffington, Gray, St. Ledger. He had a difficult relationship with Chancellor Allen. So in terms of assembling an entourage and navigating the factionalised world of um, politics in Ireland, it seems that Brabazon was guided by personal ambitions. There were reports of him bedecking his followers in his livery in England as well as in Ireland, and by the need to secure, um, to secure alliances with those who had similar ideas on policy and politics. But just to conclude, uh, assessing Sir William Brabazon's significance, Brendan Bradshaw spoke of the advent in Ireland after 1534 of greed and a developing colonial ideology, especially among the new English element in Ireland. Sir William Brabazon provides the prototype um, of a special type of minor demon whose influence on the course of Irish history was to be altogether more baneful than the major demons whom the historiography presents for our execration. Uh, more recently, David Edwards has turned our attention to the savagery of Brabazon's military exploits, again concluding that Brabazon is emblematic of a turn in English attitudes towards violence and the people of Ireland. Now, examining Brabazon from a community perspective, as Stephen Ellis did for Darcy, suggests that William, sorry, that Henry VIII's last under-treasurer of Ireland was possessed of a complex set of loyalties, identities and roles. Certainly to label him New English, with all the baggage that seems to be carried by that term, seems to oversimplify. Just as Stephen Ellis encourages us to think twice before assigning William Darcy to the developing Anglo-Irish community and instead to see him as a Meathman, a Palesman and a lawyer in government service, we should perhaps to see, try to see Brabazon and other English-born newcomers to Ireland in multiple, um, sometimes overlapping, contexts. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.